blessing to be able to stand before you today as the pastor of this church. Uh, and before we begin today, I'd like us to take a moment and just, I just want us to lift up praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for all that he's done through our beloved founding pastor, Pastor David, and his lovely bride, Michelle, and all that he's going to keep doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this special church, Lord God. Thank you for this body of believers, Lord God. Thank you for calling this church to Chapel Hill, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the opportunity and the door that is open to do your work here, Lord God. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you be with us right now as we delve into your word, Lord. I pray that you move aside any of the distractions that try to come, Lord. I pray that we turn off notifications on devices, Lord. We just focus on you, your word, and what you have for us today, Lord God. That we would be open, that we would be with our mouths ready to just eat what you give us, Lord, to be able to grow in you, Heavenly Father. So thank you for this time, thank you for this day, and thank you for this beloved body of believers. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So today we will be in the book of Revelation, and we'll be looking with a message that I've entitled, Remember and Go. And this is a little topical message before we begin a study through the book of John next week. Now, when my wife and I arrived to North Carolina two years ago, I liked the woo about John. That was good. Uh, we had open hands to whatever the Lord God wanted for our family. We wanted to be obedient to whatever he wanted us to do. And we knew there was a calling on my life in ministry. We really knew that from when we started our courtship. You can get that story from us later. Uh, but we just surrendered and committed it to the Lord. And now we fast forward to this moment and our family, it's just been a surreal, humbling, and blessing of an experience to be able to come and serve this body, to serve such a loving group of people. This church, our body loves the Lord, our body loves people, and we experienced it firsthand the first day we came in through those doors. We will never forget Kim Booth's smiling face, didn't even know us, big, giving us big hugs, and that's what is so special about this church. And since the announcement of the transition uh, that God laid out before Pastor David and myself, we've been grateful for the love, prayers, care from each and every single one of you, and we have to keep that going. Now, that said, change can bring about an array of different feelings, because this is our church. This is, this is a second home for people. This is a place you know, you love, you serve. And as we prepare... And as I prepare for what the Lord is seeking for Calvary Chapel of Chapel Hill for its future, and as I prepare to figure out what to feed, to teach, and tend you, his people, the text of Revelation 3, 7 through 13, was one that kept getting laid on my heart again and again and again. And when Pastor David shared with me the meaning of it for him and this body, it was just one of those other moments where God was just saying, I'm in control, I have a plan, seek me. Listen and obey for my people. So let's stand and let's read those verses right now. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. 
For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your word and how you preserve it for us. Lord God, I just ask Holy Spirit to fill me, get me out of the way. Let me surrender all, Lord, that the words that come out of my mouth be exactly what you need for these people in this moment, Lord God, for such a time as this. Heavenly Father, just please take this time that we would all be fed and grow for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a seat. So the book of Revelation, this is one of the books that unfortunately is most often overlooked by so many churches. Yet, it's a book that has a special blessing for his people. God even promises a special blessing within the first chapter of this book. When we read in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The time is near indeed, ever closer with each and every single day. Now, this book itself was written uh, by John in AD 96. It's a book of prophecy. If we think about the Bible itself, Genesis gives us where it all began. Revelation shows us where it's all going to end. In Revelation 1.1, we see the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now, I've had the opportunity to preach a few times before this church, and I always remind you and try to give a little bit of context when we're doing a topical study or when we're going to be starting a new book. We always want to lay that. Youth group, you know what I'm going to do now. This is your PSA announcement, folks. Always take scripture in context. I repeat, always take scripture in context. Do not approach God's word as a genie lamp that you can just kind of take and do whatever you want with. When you're studying his word, take a book of the Bible, open it, read it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's the way of Calvary Chapel. That's the way of this church and the way it will always be. And as you do that, you will see the power of the Holy Spirit because he illuminates the verses that you're reading and he will inevitably always speak directly to whatever's going on in your life. So as we're going on, just so you know, Sundays, like I said, next week we'll be starting John, and on Wednesdays we're going to be going through the book of Psalms as we seek to learn more about worship and prayer as a body. So I encourage you, come out Wednesday night also. So now the nutshell backstory of Revelation. John writes this book while he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus comes and gives all of this to John 
to write. In chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, we see, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Titeria, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This is written and addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor at the time. But we will see, and as God's word always proves, it's alive and relevant to any one part of his bride, the church. The book itself conveys what is seen as John sees it with Jesus in the first chapter. Then it shows all of the things that are currently going on with the letters to the churches in the second and third chapter. And then fourth to the end, it shows everything that's going to come, which is why in chapter four, we see that phrase after this, metatauta, because it's shifting to heaven after the rapture, that blessed hope. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is a book that unfortunately is often neglected by several churches. It's seen as a book that's too hard, too difficult, too many controversial places and things going on. But in our current times, think about it. People are looking and wondering, what's going on? What is all the things that's happening that's mean? How does all of this end? And as with all things, we need to remember the answer lies right here in the word of God. So it is a book I do encourage all of you to work through. And you have to ask yourself, do you open the word of God or do you just let it kind of collect dust on a shelf and you keep hoarding and prepping for an abstract end? The end has to be taken rightly dividing scripture, rightly dividing it. And as we're doing that, we check what we hear about the end, check it with scripture. And also it's important to note, because we're in this book, it doesn't then mean that we look at everything going on in the world and we try to figure out, okay, that happened and that happened. So if I look at this, okay, September 6th at 2 p.m. the rapture will happen. I know it. No, that's not what we do. No one will know the hour. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No one's going to know. So what do we do with Revelation? We study it. We study Ezekiel. We study Daniel. We become students of the Old Testament so that you can see how the imagery used in Revelation is alluding to prophecies of old. And in that, you then get to see how this book gives you an intimate revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Revelation reminds us that when the world is in turmoil, and I think we can feel that the world's in turmoil, believers can have happiness, for we're blessed with the promises of what to come. This book shows us that when government or forces around us try to demand worship or take the place of God, we are to have patience. We are to have faith. And this book reminds us that we're to point our entire lives running the race towards eternity with our King, Jesus. Revelation's a book of hope. It's a book of assurance in Christ. It's a book that promises that our sovereign God has a sure method to overcome evil once and for all. As verse 19.6 tells us, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's 19.6. So don't be afraid of this book. Instead, see it as a savory dessert. Pick whatever your favorite dessert is in a hearty meal, and that's what Revelation is. It's sweet and tender to enjoy and to have the hope of what's to come. So our focus text for today now, 
Revelation 3, which as mentioned is part of the two and three chapters where we're looking at the seven different churches going on there. There's a letter given to each church. When you look at the letters that are given, each one, each church gets a commendation, a rebuke and a correction of something that's amiss, instruction and an exhortation to change, and a promise that flows from the obedience to that exhortation. Now, these churches that are in this portion of Scripture, they point to churches at that time, but they also point to the attributes of various churches within church history and different time periods within church history. And God's word is so powerful that simultaneously there is also application for the attributes that can be found in any church or the heart, soul, and mind of any believer. So today we're going to solely focus on the church of Philadelphia. Now this church is special. It lasted longer than any of the others except Smyrna. It was around until about 1300 A.D. when Turks on a mission to murder Christians came there and destroyed it. Now, Philadelphia, as many of our northerner transplants that are in the room know, it's the city of brotherly love, which is a name fitting for the special church of Philadelphia. Now, its geographical location is a small city about 40 miles southeast of Sardis, It was known for its vineyards and producing much wine. Now, the city itself was originally founded as a missionary outpost for Hellenism. Reject God, reject monotheism, just go with the flow and be apathetic. And the goal there was to spread the culture of ancient Greece to the people. It was to spread the language, spread the culture, spread the mannerisms throughout the Asian provinces. And clearly, God put a church in Philadelphia for a different missionary purpose, to spread the most important language, the word of God, the most important culture, God's, the most important citizenship, citizenship with him as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God, whose home is heaven. Makes me think of us in Chapel Hill, an area that has science, education, growing metropolitan culture, secular humanism growing, live your truth, do whatever. Yet saints, we are here to spread the word and stand for Christ. The city of Philadelphia was named after its founder, Attalus II, who was also known as Philadelphos. The city itself laid on the main route of the imperial post from Rome going east. So it was a gateway to east. And it also, because of all the beautiful buildings it has, was also known as Little Athens. Now something else of interest about this is it's geologically, it sat on a fault line. So there were several earthquakes that would happen there. It was actually destroyed in 17 BC and later to be rebuilt where some of the original citizens were like, nope, not going back there. That's the city where we find the church of Philadelphia, or as many call it, the faithful church. This is where we find the church that Calvary Chapel at Chapel Hill was based on for God's glory for the past 20 years and where we need to keep going and being for the next 20 years and beyond until the Lord brings his church home. So in verse 7 we see, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now if you do a survey of all of the letters before this, Jesus describes himself to those churches using pieces of imagery 
that is found in the first chapter of this book. But for the church of Philadelphia, that's not the case. He describes himself, he who is holy, he who is true, and he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So first thing to note, God desires to speak to his church. Because we see that. He's, he's, all of these letters are going to the church. How does he speak? His written word. And that's why we remember Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. So we start there, remembering God wants to speak to his church. I remember there were those signs, God is still speaking, but they weren't using the Bible. God is still speaking through this, through his word. Second, who does Jesus say he is? First, he says, he is holy. Second, true. Third, the key holder. When Jesus says he's holy and true, he's not pointing to an occasional state of acting. He's pointing to his supreme being. 1 Peter 1, 16. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Jesus is the one that holiness pours down from. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is true. He is absolute truth. He is the ultimate truth. Contrary to our culture of relative truth and living your truth, there is ultimate truth. Jesus. He who has the key of David. This points to the authority that his holy and true Jesus has. This is referencing Isaiah 22, 15 to 25. And jot that down, go back to it later. Isaiah 22, 15 to 25. Where Assyria had invaded Judah, as Isaiah had warned would happen, but the Jewish leaders were trusting uh, Egypt, not God, to deliver the nation. And the evil leader, Shebna, ruled with a heart that was about his own gain, not about the people not about the interest of the people. So what does God do? He removes Shebna and puts in place a faithful man, Eliakim. He gets the keys of authority. Eliakim in that is a portrait of Jesus Christ, our ever faithful and dependable ruler of our affairs. As the supreme ruler, the doors that God opens, no one can shut. The doors that he closes, no one can open. How does that apply to your own life? If God opens a door in your life, work. What do you do? Obey. Go. Do it by his spirit, never by your own strength. And if he closes a door, wait. How do you wait? Stop and pray. Why? He's in control. He's the supreme being. He knows what's best. He is holy. He is true. So we see in this, Jesus establishes a reminder of who he is to the church of Philadelphia. Then we go to verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Jesus reminds them that he knows their works. He says this phrase to each of the churches, and it reminds them, and it reminds us, God knows all. God sees all. We can't hide anything from God. You are tricking yourself if you think you can hide something from him. 
And for this church of Philadelphia, he sees their steadfast faithfulness despite different difficult circumstances. And he tells them to see, I have set you an open door that no one can shut. And it's important because he says, see. He, does, he could have just said, I know your works. I've set before you an open door. He's saying, see, because there's time, saints, where there's a door that's been open and we don't even realize the door's open because we're so busy doing everything else and going for what we want that we don't realize. God's like, I actually already opened the door. That's the one, go through that door, okay? Or other circumstances where we knew the door was opened, same thing, get busy with a bunch of other stuff and we forget the door that he opened. And we have to remember that and do the work that he's called. The church of Philadelphia, he's saying to them, guess what? No one can shut it. Calvary Chapel of Chapel Hill, guess what? The door was opened 20 years ago and no one can shut it. What's this door that we're talking about? Paul talks of a door that helps us get context for this in 1 Corinthians 16.9. 1 Corinthians 16.9. And the context there is, for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Now, we're going to see a little bit later how the Church of Philadelphia handles those adversaries. But the Church of Philadelphia, they're in a city, spread to said the Greek culture, but they have the open door to serve and minister the word of God unto spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Church of Philadelphia has an evangelistic and service opportunity laid before them. And saints, only God can open that door of opportunity to a church, and only God can open the door of utterance to a minister. Calvary Chapel of Chapel Hill, founded 20 years ago, given the opportunity to minister and evangelize to this area. Only God can open it, and only he can close it. We remain faithful for his door to stay open. I've been given the door by the Lord of utterance to preach his word to his precious people in this region. Only God could have opened it and only he can close it. May I remain faithful for his door to stay open. In the intro, we shared how the churches relate to the different periods in church history. The Church of Philadelphia is the church age. It's the church doing the work and tarrying faithfully until he calls his bride. It's the church pointing to revival and missions. And that's the age we're in right now, and it's going until he raptures his bride. Now, yes, it ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows, and you could look at the church in Laodicea, and then that's really the two that are running right now, the dead church and the faithful church. But it's that alive church in greater church history that through his spirit, we have missionaries, such as William Carey, English, shoe cobbler, who was so burdened for the lost in India in 1793, he becomes the first foreign missionary. That burden for missions, that burden's carried here, similar place, India with our church, other places abroad, a burden to spread the gospel, a burden to equip men to teach his word through his spirit. It's that same burden that led the Jesus movement, that birthed the Calvary Chapel movement that we are a part of. So we see the door they have open. And then Jesus tells them, they have a little strength. They were a small church in numbers, and their strength was found in the fact that they were weak. 
What type of weak were they? The weak we all should be. They were weak enough to know they could only be strong in the Lord. They could only be strong in the Lord. It's a humility that we all need. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, Paul talks about that weakness. He talks about the thorn in the flesh, and he asks the Lord three times, please help me with this. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you in weakness. Now, there's different ideas as to what that thorn is, but it's realizing from God, I want you in that place of weakness. I want you in that place of genuine humility where you are fully dependent and reliant on the strength of God. The Church of Philadelphia had poverty in spirit. To know God's strength was the only way they could walk through the door that he opened in. This body is embedded. Our church is embedded in a 20-year history of the church. And Pastor David, knowing the only way this church could be anything is being committed solely to the strength of the Lord. I, as your new pastor, am committed solely to the strength of the Lord. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can never be too strong or too self-assured. Because guess what? The second we are, we fall right away. Zechariah 4.6 could be the anthem for the Church of Philadelphia, and it's got to be the anthem for us. Not by my might, not by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by might, nor by power. Get that right. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's being in a state of perpetual dependency on Jesus that then allowed them to do two things that he highlights have kept my word and have not denied my name. They kept his word and they didn't deny his name. Now, to keep his word, it doesn't just mean they read it and and that's it. We're reading it and we're reading it book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're so good, great. No, that's not it. That's not keeping the word. Keeping the word is James 1.22, being a doer of the word. Keeping the word is hearing God speak and obeying his word. That's keeping the word. It's putting the word into life and action. Youth group, you know this is the point where I'm going to bring up my favorite verse, Luke 9.23. Jasmine, say it for us. No, I'm just kidding. But that verse, we know we have to deny ourselves. They are probably so tired, every week it would come up, deny yourself, deny yourself. And I would say, daily, really loudly. And they'd be like, you're so loud, Vince. But it's important. We have to deny ourselves daily. For when we deny ourselves daily, then we can take up the cross and follow him. Because guess what, saints? We never arrive. We always need to be weak so that we can lean on his strength each day. It's that great hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. When you take up the cross and follow him, guess what? There's no denying his name. Now, denying his name, yes, it does mean professing Christ, but even deeper It goes deeper than that to how they live out their lives collectively and individually. Does their character reveal the name of Christ? To not deny his name is to represent Jesus through our actions, through the way we live when people see and the way we live when people can't see. I beseech you, therefore, Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Those are the verses that equal not denying his name. And it's a reasonable service because think of what he did for you and me on the cross. It's a life living for him. It's done being anchored in his word and his word alone. That's the history of this church. 20 years, his word alone. I pray that when my time comes to the end, I can stand up here the way he could and say, I gave you the whole counsel of the word. I didn't skip anything. I didn't sugarcoat anything. I gave you the whole counsel of the word. That's the journey that we all have to be on, independently and collectively. And in our culture today, that can be a tricky one. Your employer tells you tomorrow, right before 4th of July, everyone has to have pronouns in their email signature. You have no choice. Everyone has to have pronouns in their email signature. Do you oblige to preserve your job and deny Christ? Or do you take a stance for the king and trust his faithfulness to provide? Saints, as we move forward, as times get more perilous for the church, these are real questions we need to reflect on. These are real things we actually have to wrestle with so that we can be ready. Because persecution, it's inevitable. It's coming. And the U.S. has not seen what it could really, really be like. We pray for those around the globe. We partner with them, which is beautiful. But what are we ready for? How are we ready when the attack on the name of Christ comes here? What do we do? How do we handle it? Verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, this isn't a call out to all Jewish people. This is a call to a specific group of Jewish people within the city who were Jews only by name. There was no spiritual connection to Abraham or the people of faith. Yet, they were attacking the church of Philadelphia. They were coming against God's people. If we look at Acts, if you see the early church, you see the different levels of persecution that the apostles went through. It's inevitable. But notice, he says here, he will make them come and worship before your feet. They're not going to worship him. They're, going to wor they're not going to worship the people. They're going to worship God. And if they're not going to worship God, they're going to see what's taking place and realize, wow, we were attacking them, which means we turned our back on God. Oh, boy. Saints, the Lord promises vindication to show the persecutors they are wrong. And we don't have to try to seek justice on our own. If you start thinking, oh, I'll show them, oh, I'll give them a piece of my mind, that's not it. Pray. Remember the promise God has laid out. And go back to your job. Keep his word. Don't deny him. And keep the work of the door open and share who he is. And pray that they become friends and fellow believers. Chapel Hill puts out an edict. They're coming to attack all the Christians. What do we do? Do we make a counter plan? No. We stick to his plan. Stick to the word. Stick to keeping the word, how we live. And we go through that open door of evangelism and service. And we walk through it. And we pray for sin-sick souls to repent unto renewal and salvation.
Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What a promise, and also what a cause for controversy. That one verse can get different people in a tizzy. Now, for our text and for our way, we're going to really simplify what could be controversial. We're going to really keep it simple, and I encourage you to do this with God's word. Just take it literally, because from in Greek means out of, which means if you're in there, I'm going to keep you from, because I'm pulling you out of it. What is it? The rapture. And it's the promise of the rapture and not being there for the great tribulation. Now, here's the thing. We're going to suffer in this life. We're going to face persecution. God's word has promises for us. James 1 is one of those places where we have a promise. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because they're going to come, they refine us, they get us closer to him. But we have the promise that we're not going to see the great tribulation that occurs in Revelation 6.1 to 19.10. Read that later. 6.1 to 19.10. Thank you, Jesus, that we're not going to go through that. It is a time to test those who dwell on the earth. That's the phrase that we see there. That's an important phrase. Because in the book of Revelation, you'll see that nine times. And each time you see it, it's referring to those that are not saved. This is a time of testing for non-believers. The church will be removed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of our Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For... The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Saints, comfort one another. With these words. Yes, we walk on the earth, but our dwelling place is in heaven. Colossians 3 3 For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus tells the faithful church, I will vindicate you from those who persecute you, and I will preserve you from the great tribulation with the promise of the rapture. So, what's the job of that church? What are they to do? What is our job? Verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast that you hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. What are we to do? Well, right away Jesus points to the imminency of his return. He's coming and he's going to take us. How many of us are excited about that? Now, here's the thing though. With that, I want to take a minute to talk to the young folks in the room right now. Because that can be something where youth group, we've talked about this before. Middle schoolers, you guys have gone there a little bit as well. You could hear, okay, well, this rapture's coming. Jesus is going to come. I haven't even gotten married yet. I want to see how many more likes I can get on that post or something that you have that you want to do. 
And then you could just get discouraged. It's like all we're looking for is this rapture. This, I don't, I don't want to go to church. What's the point of this? This is for the young folks in the room. Nothing is going to be better than eternity with Jesus. Amen. And that said, still live your life for his glory right now. Keep running the race with endurance. Keep pursuing the dreams and passions that he, not yourself, make sure you check it, lays on you. And keep running that race, but don't be discouraged. It's what we talked about last week, your yole instead of YOLO. The youth group knows what I'm talking about. They all just put their heads in their lap. <laughs> and it's important that we do that. Not you only live once, you only live for eternity. So what do they hold fast to, the Church of Philadelphia? The open door of evangelism. A full surrender and dependency and reliance on God. And the faithfulness to God in not denying his name. What does that mean for us? Well, for the church, it's always been his word, his spirit, his way. Guess what? For however long he has me as your pastor and he has this church here, it needs to be his word, his spirit, his way. That's a phrase that just keeps coming. His word, his spirit, his way. Anchored in the 66 books of the Bible alone, not the passing fads of the time, not whatever movement is stirring the masses to justice and action. Just his word. His spirit, because it's only by him we can do anything. And we must solely, I must solely rely on the strength of God. And his way, because we've got to do it how he ordains it. We need to live in a way that radiates and proclaims his name not denies it. We need to live in a way that permeates a pleasing aroma to our king. Those crowns are the bema seat of judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And those are basically rewards that are lost, turned to regrets. And you could think, well, is, is it getting stolen? You're the one that would steal it from yourself because you get in your own way. And you need to remind yourself that's why we need to deny ourselves daily so that we don't get in the way of what the Lord has called us to and what the Lord has for us. And it must be anchored in his word, by his spirit, and his way alone. Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. Overcomers, also known as believers, saints, most of us in this place. For this one church, he doesn't find a fault because they're remaining, remaining faithful. And he says he will make them a pillar in the temple of God. Think about what we learned about where they are geologically. A pillar is a big deal for them. Because when those earthquakes would come, what would often be left, everything's down, the pillars are standing, they're still tied to the foundation. This church was tied, Philadelphia, to the foundation. It's about building yourself on the rock of salvation. For that is where stability comes. It's an honor for them to hear this, for they knew the names of certain prominent folks and leaders would be engraved on the pillar so that when people came to worship, they would see that name. This is a prominent position. And it alludes to Matthew where we see Jesus say, build your house 
on the rock of salvation, Jesus. Calvary Chapel at Chapel Hill, we need to have not just households that love God, but households of discipleship. I challenge us to reframe how we think about our homes. Households of discipleship. Men, stand up and get ready. Men, we need to be leading our families in worship. Men, we need to be taking the charge of watering his daughters, our wives, with the word of God, and also our kids with the word of God. It's not just the folks that we love that are pouring into our kids Sunday morning. It's everybody's individual responsibility. We need households of discipleship. Pulse check. What are you studying right now in the word of God as a family? Men, how are you leading them in the word? What foundation are you laying under your roof? Because men, we're called to be the shepherds of our families for him. And if it's a single parent, if you're doing it all alone, you're not because God's the father. He's with you. He's doing it with you. And those same questions apply to you and he will equip you. Don't be discouraged and buy the lie. Well, there's no man in the picture, so I guess we can't do that. No, you can. And the Lord will help you and equip you to do it. The pillars of the ancient world, as I said, they had those names on there. It would be something they would know. And he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. This is pointing to full identification with Jesus Christ. This is pointing to such a deep intimacy with Jesus Christ. And that's the precious eternal drive that we need to have. When you read that, that should click in your brain I want to live for eternity. I want to have an eternal mindset. My marriage to my bride, lover, but it's not about us. It's about him. He brought us together to refine each other for eternity with him. That's what we're running for. That's what we're doing. As they were sealed with the name of God, as we are sealed with the name of God, we get access to the city of God and of the new Jerusalem. Christ promises to bring down to heaven. You want to look at those promises, Revelation 21.9 to 22.6. Read it later, 21.9 to 22.6. And weep at the tender beauty that's promised to us. And at the end of verse 12, he says, and I will write on him my new name. Now we're going to turn to this one because this one we have to look at together. Revelation 22.3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Do you know what that means, saints? Jesus, who we read about, Jesus, who we pray to, Jesus, who we sang worship to this morning, we're going to meet him face to face. Jesus, tell me what going on in life that that promise can't be a salve for. We're going to see him face to face. And that then enables us to rejoice in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's listen and hear. Now, before we look at more applications for the body, because we know for us it means we're going to see him face to face. 
But if you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't said, Jesus, I'm depraved. I need a Savior. I need a King. I can't run this life anymore on my own. I'm all yours. Take the wheel. If you haven't done that, we're in Revelation, which is a book that tells of the end. Revelation 20.15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Pastor Vince, you're being harsh. You're being intense. No, I'm giving you the whole counsel of the word of God, saints. We're in a book that talks about the future. There's only two options. You have eternity with him or you don't have eternity with him. And if you don't know him, guess what? You also don't know when you're going to breathe your last breath. And when you breathe that last breath, not knowing him, you're perishing in the lake of fire forever. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anybody. But that's the reality of his word. And that is why we have to try to get the pride, get whatever standing between you and surrendering to him and come to know him unto salvation to be his new creation. Well, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I do in this culture. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 should make this a church memory verse. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Too many people stop there and then just blast stones at people. And we leave out verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Again, by his Spirit. Such were some of you. Guess what, LGBTQ community? Anybody there, you know your struggle. If you're struggling with sexuality right now, this God's word says, nor homosexuals, such were some of you. Change can happen. Guess what? Whatever sin you're doing that you think you can't stop, if you come to full surrender to Jesus Christ, he can change you and make you his new creation for his glory, justify you, put you on the journey of sanctification unto glorification of eternity with him. He who has ears to hear, listen. Guess what, Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill? Listen. Wednesday was such a powerful and just incredible night of worship and praise before our incredible God. And it's something we need to continue to do. And it's something we need to, as a church, share his word by his spirit and living his way. And Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill, we can't look at this area and say, well, there's no, there's no hope. They're, they're too lost. They're too woke. What, we can't do anything in downtown Chapel Hill. They have pride flags everywhere. What's the point of trying to reach them? Seriously? Saints, what if God said to you and the sin that you had, what's the point? What if that was turned on you? We need to be his church for such a time as this. We need to remain faithful and keep his word. We need to rely solely on his spirit and we need to not deny his name by action or how we live. And guess what? We're not going to be perfect. We're going to fall short, quickly repent, be renewed, and steadfastly remain part of his faithful bride. I titled the message, Remember and Go. Church, remember who you were before Christ. Remember who you are in him. Remember who he is. 
Remember the door he's opened for this church. Remember that no one can shut it, not even the government. Remember to obey his word by action and living. Remember he is the judge and vindicates, not you. Remember to persevere by his spirit and strength renewing in the word of God. Remember, we have the blessed hope. Remember, his return is imminent. Remember, future eternity with him. Remember, he is sovereign. Remember, he made you new. Remember his great commission and go. Go search your heart. Go pray to him. Go seek to be filled anew with the Holy Spirit. Go get in his word. Go live his word by his spirit in his way. Go to the cross and go share the truth. Don't say there is no hope. And allow the Holy Spirit to fill you that wherever you are out and about, Lord, do you need me to talk to this person? Remember and go. It's communion Sunday today. And what a fitting time to remember and then go. Go.